Welcome to the Business That Matters Spotlight. I'm Warren Coughlin, founder of this podcast and business coach to ethical entrepreneurs who want to build a business that matters. In short, I help you end chaos and gain control over your business so that you predictably and reliably achieve the profits, the lifestyle, and the impact you strive for through a team you can trust without the stress and frustration. When you experience this, you're more confidently able to make the world or just your corner of it a bit of a better place. At The Spotlight, we believe that every entrepreneur has a unique message that can positively impact the world and inspire others to do the same. Stick around to the end of the show. We'll reveal how you can be our next guest. Let's get started. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Business That Matters Spotlight. I'm, you know, as this podcast has been evolving, I'm getting more and more grateful for the kinds of people that I'm getting to meet and get connected with. And today is a great example of that. There's just, there are so many entrepreneurs who are really integrating their values into their business operations and are applying really, really good business skills and business experience to making a difference in the world while, you know, providing for a growing company. And today's guest is a great example of that. Walter Nimix is the founder and CEO of Just Made. And on top of that, he's doing a lot of things with uh, the, the manufacturers or the growers of the products that he uses in his in, or the ingredients in his product and supporting them after sales. We're going to dive into that a lot. So welcome to the show, Walter. Thanks a lot, Warren. It's great to be with you. Oh, it's great to be here. Uh, listen, what, tell me just before we get into all the great stuff you're doing, just at a real core level, what is Just Made? What, is it, what does it provide? So Just Made is a line of uh, tropical juices, um, cold-pressed tropical juices that we sell uh, primarily in the United States, um, hopefully soon in, in Canada as well. But uh, yeah, we, we launched the company formed the company in 2016. We kind of looked around at different ideas and then uh, landed on tropical fruits based off of some experience that we had um, prior to starting the company um, and launched the company in late 2017. So we're coming up on a five-year anniversary for having products in the market. Congratulations. Thank you. And how many products do you have right now? Currently, we have... 11 juices. They're all tropical, like I said, tropical based juices. And then we just, uh, this past fall, we launched uh, five organic lemonades. Um, they're all sweetened with organic honey. Um, and then the lemonades have, uh, we feel like, uh, interesting flavor combinations. Like we have a lavender lemonade, we have a ginger, we have a basil and mint lemonade, hibiscus and, and so forth. So really tasty, uh, refreshing lemonades. To go I'm on. looking forward to bringing them into Canada. I mean, I've looked at some of the flavors and there's some of them that I just I can't wait to get. Like one we, we talked about off camera, which is the papaya. Uh, yeah. The, what, what else is in that? There's a papaya something else. It's papaya ginger. Um, it's a combination of papaya, uh, lime, passion fruit and ginger. And the, the recipe comes from uh, really the first time I tried papaya, um, we lived in South America for a number of years. And part of that time we lived in Ecuador and, and uh, my mother-in-law lived uh, upstairs and we lived downstairs. And so we would go up uh, for breakfast uh, in the mornings. And the um, uh, first time I tried papaya, I just frankly didn't like it. And uh, <laughs> my, my mother-in-law said, well, wait just a second. She grabbed a wedge of lime and squeezed it over the top of the papaya completely transformed the flavor for me. And so that was kind of the, the, the spark of the idea for creating a juice 
Uh, there's, we call it papaya ginger today, but it has that lime. It has a little bit of the, the tartness of the passion fruit. Um, and so uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful tasting juice. In fact, it was one of the first flavors that we developed. Oh, nice, nice. So I can't get to get up here in Canada. Yeah. Um, so how many, how many people do you have working for you now within JustMate? Like what's the, what's the total team size? Yeah, we're, um, uh, I think, around 22 people right now. Uh, that includes the production staff um, plus the office office uh, folks. Uh, my wife and I are very uh, engaged, uh, you know, running the business day to day. And uh, then we've got we do our own bottling here, um, and uh, so we've we've got the production folks that that help out with uh, with the bottling, with um, you know, managing inventory, all sorts of things, and uh, have our own operations staff as well. And you started locally, but you've, you know, you're coming up to your five-year anniversary. Where, how far have you expanded? Yeah. So, um, I actually, I was counting this over the weekend. We're up to 17 states, um, distribution in 17 states right now. Um, we are pretty much coast to coast. Well, I guess we are coast to coast. We're from Southern California all the way to, um, to New York City, um, We've got a distributor up there that's doing a, a great job for us. Um, but uh, yeah, we started here locally. We uh, about, um, well, in 2017, we entered a contest called the Quest for Texas Best. We're based in Texas. Um, and this contest was designed to identify uh, small Texas uh, food manufacturers. Um, the year we participated, there were over 600 um, small suppliers. And uh, we were fortunate. We made it to the final round. Um, we didn't win the grand prize, but at least uh, we, we made it to the final round of about 10 suppliers. And uh, at that time, we were picked up by uh, the dairy buyer at HEB, um, who put us into his sets. Um, and we can talk more about, uh, you know, customers and kind of the evolution, if you like. Yeah, I was, I was just going to ask you, actually, one of the, for people who don't deal in retail, that getting shelf space, particularly in grocery and, and drugstore environments, is a pretty challenging exercise. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what kind of, were there any particular strategies you used or uh, like, what, what do you attribute your ability to get that shelf space to? Um, well, it's uh that's an interesting question. We're competing against some really big players. And, um, you know, we've, uh, we've got, of course, Naked, who's a large uh, competitor of ours. Um, they're, they're, until recently, they were owned by PepsiCo, one of the largest food companies in the world, um, uh, and other brands that are really large. Um, so we've, we've just had to uh, convince, uh, work with um, uh, buyers, uh, convince them of the uniqueness of our product, um, sell them on the, the nutritional properties, the fact that they're low in sugar, um, that tropical fruits bring a lot of nutritional properties uh, to the juice that you don't get from apples and oranges. Uh, for example, the papaya that we were talking about earlier, few people know that it's got two and a half times more vitamin C than oranges. And really? plus it has a, um, an enzyme in it called papain, which is great for digestion. So if these tropicals are just uh, bursting with nutritional uh, benefits that uh, we try to we we talk about with our buyers. So we um, uh, you know sell them on the the 
unique attributes of our juices. Plus, I think we've got a, a great brand and we've got a, a great uh, team that's supporting the brand on social media, introducing it to, uh, to uh, consumers in a new market. Um, but um, I, I guess, you know, a little bit of where I, I come from, um, I've, I've worked in food and agribusiness all my life, literally from the age of eight or nine, working on our family farm, um, all the way up until recently, um, I've had the opportunity to work in retail. So I understand how category managers think. Um, I've been able to work uh, for food manufacturers. So I understand the source, sourcing the manufacturing side of things and then selling into retail. Um, I've worked in import and export. So that's, um, you know, got a bit of a generalist background to me and uh, have been able to, um, you know, at this point in my life, start a company and, um, you know, hopefully see it through to, to success. But um, so, yeah, that's, um, I'm sorry, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question specifically, but uh, it's well, really. When you, when you go into a yeah. buyer, like at a real basic level, <clears throat> yeah. a buyer for a product like this. How much do they like? Do they taste it and go, "Yeah, I like that," and want to get it in, or do they do focus groups, or do they just look at sales volumes in other jurisdictions? Like, what are the what are the things that sort of turn their brain to say, "Yeah, I want to, I want to give these people a try." Yeah, so we we find that the product uh, sells itself. Um, people will try it, and they will they really like the the flavors, they like the the colors, the the uniqueness of of the juices. Um, so yeah, a lot of times it's the buyer tries it and says, wow, I really like this. I can see a, a place for this in my category. Um, other times they will bring it in. They'll have some of their team try it. We even had a, a buyer from a major uh, food service operator um, had his two daughters try the juices and say, and the two daughters gave the thumbs up. And so um, he said, okay, my daughters liked it. We're going to bring it in. So were they just were they little kids or were they grown daughters? Uh, no, they were teenage, teenage um, age, and uh, they uh, they picked their two or three favorites, and those were the ones that we started off with. So nice. it becomes very personal for, with food. Yeah, I think it's good for people to hear those stories because I think there's this mythology, right? Like in large corporations, that buyers have some sophisticated set of data that they use to analyze products, but so it's still a human decision, isn't it? It's still a human decision. Uh, there, I mean, frankly, there are a lot of buyers that will look at data and, um, you know, the IRI, Nielsen, SPENS data and make a decision based off of that. Um, but when you're trying to break into a market, um, it really comes down to that um, personal, um, you know, working directly with the buyer, um, you know, taste of the product, the, um, the packaging, the label has to really stand out. Um, have to be able to communicate, um, you know, the attributes of the product in a very small around, amount of space. And it has to be something that, you know, the consumer is attracted to. So um, that's, I think that's been, all of that's kind of been part of our success. Now, with your array of background that you have within this space, is there anything that um, someone who would be new to this kind of space, thinking of getting into retail or particularly food-based retail, that they'd be surprised at, like a, a skill set that you need or a discipline that may not be obvious. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, uh, there's a lot there to uh, maybe talk about. Um, <laughs> we don't have to do. We don't have to do a treatise. I just thought sometimes there's like 
if they want to get into this, there's a, here's one thing you should really think about or know. Yeah, I would say, um, you know, two critical pieces of, of running a business, of course, cash flow. Uh, we've all heard the mantra, cash is king. Mm-hmm. It really is, you know, managing your cash flow. But in this day and age, it's, uh, it's even more difficult because you're having to manage your inventories at the same time because of supply chain challenges and those sorts of things. So it's a real balance with uh, keeping your inventories at the right level. Um, and then also, um, you know, managing your cash flow at the same time. So, you know, we've had to say no a few times to some customers and to some accounts because, you know, the business conditions didn't allow us to be um, as profitable or didn't allow us to manage our cash like we needed to. So um, it's, it's really key to, um, you know, to have that balance and, you know, you run out of cash and, you know, it's, it's game over. So I'm so glad you said that just that the willingness to say no for so many entrepreneurs that would feel so difficult and like something that's just the death knell of the business. But you're saying that sometimes you have to do that to save the business, that a sale, a sale that does sale that drains cash is not a sale that's going to drive growth. Yeah, that's, that's very true. Um, you know, there's, there's some situations where a, a buyer's, you know, really pushing hard on, on price and saying, no, you're, uh, you're more expensive or you're this or you're that, and, you know, your minimum order quantity is too high or something like that. And we just have to say, well, maybe not now. Um, maybe we can come back to you in a year or two when the conditions are different. Um, so yeah, it's, um, it's important, you know, it's, you never want to say no, but it's sometimes you just kind of have to, you have to do it because at the end of the day, it is a, it is a business. It's uh, it's managing your cash flow. It's managing the business for long-term success. And, you know, like we mentioned earlier, we've got 22 people, 22 families that depend on us. And so mm-hmm. we have to make sure that the business stays viable. It's a pretty great ratio though, for the you know, 22 people and you're in that number of states and you've got that number of products, you must have, I mean, I imagine part of your background was involved in creating those efficiencies in production because that, that sounds like a fairly lean operation. Yeah, I, I, I had, a, had an opportunity to make mistakes on other people's dime. So I, I learned from a <laughs> lot of mistakes. And uh, um, yeah, it's uh, it, the, um, the experience goes a long way. And um I think, you know, when we were talking earlier, Warren, we, we talked about how, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs step out, they're 22, 24 years old, they're really young. Um, and I don't know if I'd have been able to, to start a business at that age. Certainly, you know, the experience, you know, you've got a lot more energy when you're that age and you've got a lot more um, kind of wild eyed, um, you know, hey, we can do this optimism, I guess. Um, but when you reach, uh, I started just made when, or my wife and I started when I was 50, she's younger. Um, but, uh, uh, um, so I, um, started the business. I was 50. Uh, my wife was much younger. Um, yeah, I was, uh, she was much younger, but you know, I was able to come to it with that experience, which I don't think I would have been able to do at a, you know, in my early twenties, like a lot of entrepreneurs do. Right. Yeah. I, I hear you. I mean, some of that part of the theme that I try to get across in this in this podcast is also that as much as you want to do good in the world, you have to have some of the business disciplines, some of the business skills in order to succeed. And mm-hmm. on that, just one of the one of the things I would have 
I imagine would have affected you when, when COVID hit was you have something like what, 26 or 27 different ingredients. So how have you managed just supply chain management? Sounds like that would be a bit of a handful. It is a handful. It's um, something that I probably spend a third of my time on um, is making sure that we've got the ingredients, that we've got um, the bottle, that we've got the, you know, the, the labels, the caps, all of the components that go together to manufacture the product. Um, we have a couple of ways that we manage that. Um, one, we have an MRP or uh, materials resource planning meeting every, uh, every week. Um, used to be on Monday, we've since, since changed it to Tuesdays, but um, it's uh, when the purchasing manager and I go through every single ingredient, um, we're looking at forecast for six months in advance, um, sometimes longer, um, and then uh, contracting ingredients where it makes sense, or sometimes we're spot buying where it doesn't make sense to, to spot buy ingredients. Um, so that's, uh, that's, that's one way that we manage the raw material side of things. And then uh, the second meeting that we have on a weekly basis is an SNOP meeting. Um, it's a sales and operations planning. It's um, looking at our near-term projections for the next, let's say two to three weeks, um, and then planning production for um, the following week and maybe the week after that. So that's, um, those, that's a couple of ways that we've been able to manage inventories and make sure that we fulfill orders. Uh, we've been fortunate that, um, and I, I think that we've got a system in place that allows us to be um, successful, you know, knock on wood. Um, but uh, I think it, uh, you know, it's enabled us to be able to, to manage those inventories and manage um, fulfilling orders and uh, overcoming some of the supply chain challenges. Now, you mentioned you grew up on a farm and where, where was that? Was it in Texas or was it elsewhere? It was actually in eastern Arkansas, um, not too far from Memphis. Of course, Memphis on the other side of the Mississippi River. But uh, I was, yeah, I grew up in eastern Arkansas. It's very flat there, very rural. Um, what kind of farm was it? What did you, what did you raise? Uh, my dad had, uh, he had cotton, he had soybeans, um, he had feeder steers, uh, he raised hogs at one point or another. He had, he was, he was an entrepreneur himself. He, uh, and I, you know, my granddad as well. Um, he, he did uh, greenhouse tomatoes um, and used to sell the greenhouse tomatoes to, to buyers in Memphis and surrounding cities. Um, but uh, yeah, we had, uh, yeah, those main crops. We also had some grain sorghum, winter wheat. Um, a lot of rice is grown in that area of the country. Um, at one time, it was almost half of the United States rice was grown in eastern Arkansas. I don't know if that's that right. Is still true or not, but it used to be. Wow. Yeah. And I like what you say, you know, your dad was, was an entrepreneur. It's funny. I've, you know, I grew up in Canada and Western Canada and Alberta, which is a lot uh -huh. of farm community. And there's a, you know, there's this sort of perspective that farmers are their own thing, but you don't often think of farmers as entrepreneurs, but their ability to know what's going on in the market, adjust their products based on market yeah. needs and market pricing. It's, they have hardcore entrepreneurial skills. What did, what did you learn growing up under that environment? Well, um, <laughs> I, I used to think I wanted to be a farmer and then I, I uh, <laughs> went to school and uh, was, I guess opened my eyes to a few other things, but uh, you know, farmers really, they, um, they put it all on the line every year. You know, it's, uh, it's a huge risk. 
it's very risky business. It's, um, it's very hard work. Um, they take a lot of risk and they, um, you know, many times they get rewarded the least for what they produce and the, you know, in the food value chain. Um, it's a wonderful life. I mean, don't get me wrong, but it's, um, it's, it's a, it's a hard life. It's a, uh, it's a lot of hard work, a lot of late nights and really early mornings and sleepless nights and wondering whether or not it's going to rain this week and save your crop or not. It's, um, it's really, it's, it's pretty tough. My dad, um, was very wise and he gave me, I think the greatest gift he could have given me. He, he um, when I got to the age of 15, and he did this for my brother as well. He, uh, he rented land to us. And so we were able to rent a hundred acres of land from him. Uh, we paid him cash, um, rent for the land. He, uh, uh, allowed us to use his equipment, you know, the tractors and everything, but we had to pay per hour for the tractors. Um, and then, you know, we could buy seed using his credit, um, or, you know, farm chemicals, fertilizers, those sorts of things. And then we could either decide to do all the work ourselves, or we could hire people that work for my dad on the farm to, to work with us. And, um, so I remember many mornings going out, checking my own crop at the break of dawn and, and then, uh, then going to work for him, you know, in the summer. And, um, but it was, it was great because it really taught me about how to run a business at a, at a young age. And, um, it was something that I'm, I'm really grateful to him for doing for us. Sounds like a wise man. Yeah, very wise. Now you, you've picked up some of that respect for farmers because you, you do a lot for the, the people who grow your products. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Like, what's your relationship like with uh, the producers of your ingredients? Um, yeah, so we, we work uh, with uh, many small producers, but we also work with some, you know, some food manufacturers that are converting the, the ingredients into, you know, say a fruit pulp that we then import from, say, Brazil or Ecuador or Nicaragua. But um, one of the things that we did when we, when we started Just Made is that um, we wanted to uh, do something that would really help the, uh, the people that were actually growing the, the passion fruit or the papaya or the, uh, the pineapple, um, the tropical fruits. Um, my wife and I were thinking about different ways that we could do that. And um, I'm a, I was, took economics in college and, um, you know, enjoy listening to different economics podcasts and that sort of thing, and um, learning more about international development. And one of the things that always came clear to me was that um, infrastructure is always a great way to support developing economies, investing in infrastructure so that in, you know, the institutions around those inf that infrastructure to really help the economy to, to grow and to, to flourish. Well, we weren't um, obviously donating millions and some cases billions of dollars to build infrastructure. We're not, we're not going to be at a point where we can build bridges um, or highways, but we're thinking that maybe the best way for us to invest would be through education. And so that, from that kind of came the idea to uh, create a, a, a fund. We, we call it the five cents for teachers foundation where for every bottle that we sell, we donate five cents to that foundation. And then that foundation turns around and um, supports schools in the regions where those farmers 
in Brazil, let's say, or sending their kids to school. So um, we've been able to help in that way. We've been able to, uh, to help schools in Brazil and Mexico and Nicaragua um, very soon in Ecuador as well. Um, what, does that, what does that help look like? Like, is it paying teacher salaries? Is it building buildings? Is it getting educational materials? Like what, how does that, how does that foundation dollars translate into what's going on in the classroom? Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's a bit of all of that. It's, um, it, we really, um, we, we talk directly with the, the school administrators, the, um, you know, the, the principal of the school, they, you know, many times call them the director of the school um, and ask them, what do you need? Um, how can we help? And, um, you know, sometimes it's, um, uh, it's replacing a roof on a, on a school building. Sometimes it's repairing some broken windows. Maybe it's, um, putting light in Mexico. We, um, actually, um, went in and we repaired the bathrooms, brought, um, uh, running water to the school. Um, as the director said, um, you know, I asked her, you know, what's the, What's priority A? What's uh, what's the biggest need that you have right now? And uh, she said, "I need functioning bathrooms." And um, and if, in her words, um, she said, uh, "Can you imagine how hard it is to tell a third grader just to hold it, um, you know, and expect them to <laughs> learn, you know, because yeah. they're they're sitting there and they're they don't have a place to go." And um, brain can so only what the bladder can contain. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, you know, we've done things like that in another school in Nicaragua, they were a little bit more advanced. It was a K to 12 school um, where they had a, a small computer lab for their seniors, uh, their 12th graders. And um, we bought, uh, we replaced all of the, the desktop computers. We bought 12 brand new desktop computers for them and uh, then had a little bit of money left over and sent the teacher to, uh, to Managua so that she could do some uh, training, kind of uh, refresh her skills, and then come back and apply that into the classroom. So, nice. Those are great. And what's the reaction when you reach out to them? Well, <laughs> sometimes it's, um, yeah, right. Um, okay, another gringo, you know, uh, here we go, you know. Uh, but it's, um, we, we, we follow through on these. And uh, it's, you know, it's, I mean, once they kind of realize, like, why? It's just stop there for a second. Like, why is there that cynicism? Like, I think that's a really interesting thing. The fact that some would say, "Here we go again." Like, what is the again that they've experienced from people that leads to that kind of cynicism? I think there's, um, there's, there's in general uh, a a certain level of mistrust, maybe that's been created um, through NGOs. And, you know, I don't want to paint all NGOs with the same brush, obviously, but I think, you know, sometimes there are NGOs that come in and they want to do good. And then, you know, money um, doesn't always flow to where it's most needed. You know, either somebody has a pet project or a politician may get involved. And then the politician is kind of like, well, you know, a little bit here, a little bit there. <laughs> Maybe some of the money doesn't always make it to the school. Um, we try to work outside of, um, you know, local governments. We try to make sure that the money goes directly to the, um, to the teacher, to the, or the teachers, to the, um, to the principals, to, um, you know, to, to where it's needed. And uh, we pride on ourselves on the fact that 
100% of the money from the Five Cents for Teachers Foundation goes to uh, supporting um, you know, teachers and students, um, where it's not like we're taking 50% of it for administration. Right. Um, you know, administrative cost, or even five percent, a hundred percent of the money goes to to that. So it's um, it's something that my wife and I really believe in. Um, we raised our our two daughters uh, with you know to always put education um, you know near the top of their list of priorities. Um, and uh, my wife is an educator. Um, she taught in the classroom for about fifteen years, both in. Uh, Ecuador and also in Colombia, where we lived, and now in the U.S. Um, and now she works for um, uh, she works with the administration and uh, local school district here in, in Houston. So, um, yeah, it's it's something that's really important to us. Something we believe very strongly in. Nice. It's um, it's really um, incredible to uh, to see what four or five thousand dollars can do. And some of these, um, some of these schools, some of these communities, it's um, you know, it's pretty amazing. Um, you know, it is, it is quite remarkable, isn't it? I used to be on the board of a of a charity called Street Kids International, uh, mm-hmm. and another one um, called the Funding Network. And some of the, some of the initiatives were just so high leverage for small dollars. It's it's incredible. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. You. Now you talk on your website too, also about. Um, you know, treating the farmers justly, like even like just made is, is sort of yes. a, a, a double entendre, right? It's, a, it's yeah. also being made justly. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that? Like what's your relationship like with the farmers themselves, apart from the, 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 the five cents back on education? Like how do you relate to them or treat them or pay them? Or like, what's your, what's the structure of that being made justly? Yeah. Well, it's, um, I mean, it's, it, First and foremost, it's about, you know, supporting the schools. It's about uh, making sure that, uh, you know, there's, uh, we're able to, you know, support the communities and support the schools where these farmers live. Um, and what that does, I think, I've, um, is it's, it kind of helps us at the same time because, you know, what parent really doesn't want the best for their children. And so right. if they see that Just Made is, is supporting the school where their child goes, you know, maybe they'll work just a little bit harder or they'll make a, a decision at some point, point along the road to maybe make sure that our, the quality of our, our fruits and ingredients are just, you know, a little bit that much better. Or maybe right. that they ship on time. Maybe that they, sh- they hit that week's vessel um, to make it um, to the U.S. Um, you, you know, I, uh we also, you know, encourage when, when we're buying from uh, maybe a, a puree manufacturer, we encourage them to, uh, to make sure that they're paying a fair price, uh, to make sure that, um, you know, they're not squeezing the farmer, um, you know, for their own gain. Uh, we, we work with processors that are reputable, that share our ideals of wanting to, um, you know, develop the, uh, the local communities because, you know, the last thing they want is a reputation of, uh, of squeezing farmers and, and uh, you know, they um, next crop comes around and it's, they don't have uh, they don't have the ingredients to to process like they need. Right. And you also like choose um, sources too. like your honey comes from what women women owned organic honey co-ops or that kind yeah. of thing. Right. Like you're, you're choosing suppliers that it's good to support. That's correct. That's correct. We, um, that's right. Thanks for mentioning that. Our, uh, our organic lemonades are sweetened with, uh, with honey. 
so we're sourcing honey from southern Mexico, um, where there are um, women-operated beekeeping cooperatives, women-owned beekeeping cooperatives, um, that we source the honey from, and we're bringing honey directly from them. Um, and so that's that's really important. And I think it, um, you know, women a lot of times they uh, they spend the money where it's most useful. Um, you know, for the development of the community, for the certainly for the development of families uh, mm -hmm. in the region, it's uh, it's it's an interesting story. The the uh, honey comes from a region called Calakmul, which is a um, it's a biosphere in southern Mexico that's uh, it's pretty large. I added up the acreage one time, and it's about the size of the state of Delaware. Mm -hmm. um, it's uh it's very large and right in the heart of this uh biosphere called Kalakmul is uh the ancient city of Chichen Itza. Oh, so right. it's uh yeah it's many of the um you know ancestors of the ancient Mayan civilization are the ones that are producing the honey for us and these uh, these beekeeping uh, practices have been passed down for generation upon generation all the way from the Mayans and and honey is uh, is so important to the local economy, but it's also really important to the ecology of the region. Um, and so it's uh, it's it's a it's a great story. It's um, you know it's a wonderful area of the world, and it's uh, you know certainly a, uh, you know the 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 bees and the honey and you know the 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 whole practice of beekeeping is really important to not only the economy but also the ecology. Thank you. Beekeeping is, I'll tell you just a quick story, uh, not related to yours, but just it's, it's uh, you'll probably find it interesting. One of the charities I was involved with, um, there was a group in, I believe it was Uganda, and they had, a, it was a small village and they had a problem with elephants. They mm. were coming and coming into the village and eating the crops. And they were like, what are we going to do? Somebody said, well, maybe we could kill the elephants. And people are like, we don't want to kill the elephants. That's, <laughs> right. you know, we like the elephants. We don't want to kill them. <laughs> and so somebody said, you know what really bugs elephants? And I said, what? Bees. They huh. get in their ears and their eyes and it, it drives them crazy. So somebody said, huh. okay, we're going to just put wire fence up and on the posts have beehives. And the elephants would come, hit the wire, the bees would come out, attack the elephants. The elephants went, don't want any part of this and left. <laughs> and it introduced a new cash crop to the community. And it was just an example of how like accessing local wisdom rather than being, you know, to your point about foreign NGOs coming in, like was instead of somebody from outside coming in and saying, we're going to give you the solution. It was a facilitated conversation of problem solving where local wisdom yeah. helped lead to an outcome that was just better. Oh, that's a great story. I love that. That's, um, I mean, it's, it's amazing how, you know, nature really works in such a way that, you know, I think farming over the past 50 or hundred years, we've forgotten a lot about how nature really kind of, um, you know, it, it works so uh, symbiotically together that it's it's just um, it's it's great. That's I love that story. Yeah. Now, yeah. I, I want to at a personal level, like, why does this matter to you so much? Like you 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 mentioned off camera. Maybe you can explain it. You talk about the two blades of a scissor. Um, mm -hmm. You know, for for business. So I'm interested about just what that metaphor is for people, and also just like why does this? You know, you could go out and make juices, but why does it matter for you to you so much to also be making a difference? Yeah. Um, well, like I, I mentioned a little bit earlier, um, we just um, we believe that education is, is really important. And um, um, I don't know if I shared this or not, but um, 
my, my wife and I lived in Latin America for, um, you know, close to 10 years. Uh, she's from Ecuador. Uh, we met when I was uh, working down there. And um, I just feel such a connection with, um, with you know, the people and the culture. Um, as I've said many times, I, I feel like I'm Ecuadorian at heart. I was raised in Ar Arkansas, but I'm Ecuadorian at heart. Um, and uh, we just have such a connection, I think, uh, maybe from my upbringing with, with farmers. And uh, we uh, also... Uh, feel very strongly in education. You know, a lot of times, you know, kids from these schools are, you know, they're not going to be able to go to, you know, in many cases, um, they're not going to be able to go to maybe UCLA or University of Texas or Georgia Tech or something like that, where, you know, a lot of times even, you know, kids in inner city schools, they get the opportunity to go to, you know, great universities like that. Um, but, uh, you know, we're trying to do our part to really just raise the, the level of education so that, you know, perhaps, you know, they, um, you know, they can take their education that much further. They develop a love for, for school. They develop a, a love for, you know, kind of continuing to, to grow and to, uh, you know, to read more and to learn more. And maybe they become better stewards of the environment. Maybe, you know, in a small way it helps. Um, with uh, some of the issues that we're facing on a more global level, you know, with a more educated population like that. And um, like I said, we, we raised both of our, our girls to, uh, to, to value education and to always have it at uh, near the top of their priority list. Um, but it's, you know, the, the metaphor with the scissors is uh, uh, we view, um, you know, what we're doing with Just Made and the Five Cents but it's also there has to be a business um, component to it. Um, so it's like the two blades of a scissor. Uh, you know, one doesn't work without the other. So you have to have the business in order to generate the, the money, to generate the cash in order to be able to help out uh, in that way and to, to our, our, uh, our passion is education. And so it, you have to have one without the other. You can't have one without the other. Right. And so um, it's it's um, yeah, that's that's the, uh, the the metaphor of the scissors. I think that's I think that's great. I might steal it from you. I, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, mean, I, I stole it from somebody that was very wise. So uh, we'll, give, we'll give him credit. Share the wisdom. Yeah. All right. I just I, I usually end these with a few rapid fire questions, uh, both around the business and around personal stuff. So just uh, one one decision or action that most helped you get where you are. Um, wow. I, well, I think, you know, the, the, the decision to, to make the leap, um, you know, when I left my last company, it was, um, you know, okay, do I go find another job? Do I try to do some independent consulting or do I start my own, um, my own enterprise, you know, along with my, my wife? And I think that's, I think we made the right decision. So starting the, starting the company. If you want to revamp the decision, the answer, another, another answer is marrying my wife. Yes. There you go. That was, <laughs> that was without a doubt the best decision I ever made. <laughs> uh, if you had to do it over again, what would, what, what change would you make, if any? Um, I don't know. We, we, um, 
we made a number of mistakes along the way when it came to our initial packaging to um you know the the initial kind of getting the business off the ground um we worked with a co-packer early on which was helpful but um you know now we do our own bottling and we were able to control quality so much better control our costs so much better um i think we we probably spent too much time with the co-packer and we probably spent too much time um, trying to make some bad packaging work which it, it wasn't going to work right on the days you enjoy most you would be found doing what oh it's definitely um traveling um visiting uh suppliers visiting uh schools uh as i mentioned that uh, we just got back from brazil about uh, two weeks ago um i've got another trip coming up in april um, that i'm excited about it's, those are the best days for me one aspect of running a business you've yet to master um i'm uh i'm probably not the best uh when it comes to raising capital i could probably do a much better job of that um the other thing i would encourage all entrepreneurs to find a a small group that you can um uh of other ceos or maybe a, a board or something like that where you can bounce ideas off of you can um you know, get feedback, um, and it's it just you hear other people's stories and that sort of thing, and it it really helps to kind of clear your mind and, and open up your head to to other possibilities. Um, I think those are things that I could definitely do better: raising capital and also uh, networking with uh, with other CEOs. Because when I do, I find that it um, it really helps to, to open my mind to to other possibilities. I agree. I'm actually I, I sponsor a couple chapters of a group like that. And yeah, the, the conversations, be, it does a few things for people, right? One, you get education Two, you realize that your problems, though, while real are not unique. And mm -hmm. you know, people have trod this path before and that there are many solutions. I, like I think I, I think one of the challenges for entrepreneurs is if they speak to one person who's run one business, they'll get one answer. But uh -huh. when you actually were with a group of people who face similar challenges, you'll find out, you know what, there's actually a range of solutions. And I can think about how these apply in my circumstances. And it just opens your mind a little bit more. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't, I couldn't agree more. So we need to talk offline some more about that. Uh, more. <laughs> For sure. Uh -huh. um, two last questions. And these are kind of at a, at a personal, the personal level. First, one personal quality that you most had to improve or overcome to succeed. Uh, I don't know. I, well, I mean, I've, I've got lots, lots of opportunities to improve. Maybe you should be asking my wife that. Um, <laughs> uh, I would say the kind of the key attribute that I think that um, all entrepreneurs need is just uh, this never say die. This um, always be persistent. And especially over the past couple of years, it's, We've come so close um, so many times and um, it's just, you know, do it no matter what, or what was it uh, Churchill said? Never, 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 ever, ever give up. Um, it's kind of that mantra you have to remind yourself some days. Yeah. Didn't he say when you're going through hell, keep going? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, that that's a good one too. So that may be the answer to the second one because the second is what's the personal quality that most contributed to your success? Yeah, I think that's it. I, I don't know that I'm um, that much smarter than anybody. I, I'm not that much. Uh, I don't have any qualities that uh, that others don't have. But it's I think it's a matter of reaching deep uh, on uh, on certain days where things just don't seem to be working and you're wondering whether or not this is ever going to make it. Um, those are days where you just really have to reach deep and, and keep pushing forward and, and finding, finding a way. And that's, you know, interestingly, maybe that's where, um, you know, having a, a board or having a, a, a group of, uh, of other entrepreneurs, you know, might help, you know, to, yeah. uh, to help, you know, think through some problems. Yeah. It's funny. I think the, the actor, uh, Will Smith, I saw him on an interview once where he basically says, I am not the most talented. I am not the most smart, but I will outwork anyone. That's, and that's I, good. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, <laughs> I like that. I'm going to have to look up that, uh, that quote, maybe it's on YouTube somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's pretty good. Yeah. Is, are there any last thoughts, anything you want to share about your business or advice to other entrepreneurs you'd like people to know about? Well, um, well, we're, we hope to get into Canada someday soon. Um, <laughs> oh, I'm looking forward to it. I, I love it. like, and if people haven't checked it, like go to justmade.com and just look at your, like, I think your, your recipes and the mixture of flavors you put together are inspired. Like they're brilliant. And um, I'm you. really looking forward to seeing them. Um, yeah. And is there any other place where people get there's justmade.com, but is there any other uh, resources or things, ways people can, yeah. Yeah. We're also on amazon.com. Um, you know, we receive an order, you'll, you'll get your order in a couple of days, less, but you know, if you order on a Friday, we probably wait until Monday to ship to you. But, um, um, we're, uh, like I said, we're in about 17 States. Uh, we've got uh, good distribution all over Texas, Southwest, um, um, you know, making some, some headway in the Chicago area. We've got good distribution around DC new york um so uh yeah we're we're uh continuing to grow and uh, always looking for new uh distribution partners and um of course of course new customers so yeah right on so if you are a distributor and want a really excellent product in your mix check them out at justmade.com and uh, we didn't touch on that earlier so you can order direct even if it isn't available in your retail local retail store you can order direct and right. can you do that on the justmade.com or do you have to go to Amazon to do that? No, no, no. On justmade.com, you can order. So you can yes. do your orders directly. That's right. And for all entrepreneurs, think about the two blades of a scissor. You know, do the business skills well and think about the way you want to make a difference in the world. This has been truly inspiring. I congratulate you on all your success and look forward to hearing more all about the growth Is it, especially when you come into Canada. <laughs> Thanks very much, Warren. Love the conversation. It was great talking with you. You too. Cheers. Take care. Bye. Hi, it's Warren Coughlin here. Thank you so much for listening to the Business That Matters Spotlight. If you're a successful, values-driven entrepreneur who makes a difference while making a profit and you'd like to be on this program, please visit warrencoughlin.com slash podcast slash apply. That's Warren, C-O-U-G-H-L-I-N dot com slash podcast slash apply. 
If you got something out of this interview, would you do us a favor and share this episode on social media? Just do a quick screenshot with your phone and text it to a friend or post it on the socials. If you know someone that would be a great guest, tag them on social media to let them know about the show and include the hashtag Business That Matters Spotlight. I love seeing your posts and guest suggestions. We're regularly putting out new episodes and content. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, go ahead and subscribe. Your thumbs up, ratings, and reviews go a long way to help promote the show and mean a lot to me and my team. Want to know more? Go to our website, warrencoglin.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, facebook.com slash a business that matters, and Instagram at warren.coglin. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.